weekend I was watching a, a documentary on YouTube about uh, nickel mining in Indonesia. It was super fascinating. <laughs> but at the end, they were doing the credits. And one of the people that was listed in the credits was uh, titled The Fixer. And if you know anything about um, production in international lands, oftentimes American companies will go to a place and they will hire someone called a fixer. And that person is a local who knows the land, who knows the economy, who knows the, um, the commerce and the, 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 the business and the government. And their job is to just take care of stuff that goes wrong. And it reminded me of a trip I took in 2005 to Uganda. I was playing in a band. It was, it was a fun time being a rock star. And uh, we, I, I call it, it was our world tour because it was outside of the United States. Um, and uh, we played for about 10 days in Kampala, Uganda for the pastor's conference and a bunch of schools. And um, our biggest show was at the University of Kampala in front of like 3,000 college students who were just thrilled that this American band who we might as well have been like the Beatles or U2 or, and neither one of those are American bands, which says something about American music. But... Um, <laughs> um, they were just thrilled to have these people playing for them. But we had a, we had a fixer, and his name was Badger for some reason. Um, we ended up calling him Weasel by the end of the trip. And uh, you know, he tried to get us to rent a kick drum that had a broken head on it that just wasn't going to work, and we had to like, convince him that we needed to find a different drum. But then um, during the show in Kampala, he rented this big old... Uh, like Cold War Russian soundboard uh, for us to use. And um, we were doing sound check. And, and my buddy Mike, who is one of the pastors at Transform, was, was our lead singer. And he, um, he was just going for it because, you know, we're rock and rollers. And he was just yelling in this microphone, doing sound check. And it was just crackling and distorting. And so he said, hey, hey Badger, the, the mic is distorting. And he, he would go, oh, I don't, I don't think so. And, and, he go, and we said, you know, listen to it. And, and it would distort and, and clip. And, and then he, he took it from Mike and he went, he goes, I don't think it's distorting. And no, you have to like, you have to like sing into it. Like, no, 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 listen. No, it's fine. And we couldn't get him to fix it. And so we had to like get a different fixer at the last minute to go find us a good microphone that would work. And the reason I tell that story, other than I find it funny, um, that's really all the only reason I tell anything is because I find it funny. The next two chapters in Genesis, there's a lot of stuff that happens, and a lot of it is going wrong. Abraham does things that go wrong. Um, Sarah does things that go wrong. There are... uh, political things that happen that go wrong. And what we see throughout these chapters is that God is constantly at work fixing it. Not because he has to, not because he's been hired by Abraham like Badger was hired by us, but because he has a plan and a purpose. And in the midst of all of this brokenness that we just heard read, he's going to step in at multiple points and make good on the problems that our hero and his family have caused. 
What's, what's God trying to accomplish here? And I'm going to take a look at two things, but I want to remind us of what God said he was going to do in Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. So from that section and then on through chapter 17 and then back in 15 and 12, we we remember that God has promised Abraham some things. He's promised him, first of all, to give him a child from Sarah. And then also that his descendants will be given the land of Canaan. These two big things. God is giving Abraham a child and he's giving Abraham a child a land, an inheritance. And God promises this. He's on the line for it because God doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't break his promises. And so as we read through chapters 20 and 21, it seems like everything is going wrong with regard to these two promises. But God, in the midst of of people's sin and foolishness is faithful. So God promised, God's going to take care of this promised son and he's going to take care of this promised land. So let's look at the, the promised son. Genesis 20 verses 1 and 2. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. So this, is, this should be deja vu for you all. This is, this is something we've seen before. This is exactly what happened in chapter 12 when Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. And you think, man, it's been so many years. Hasn't Abraham learned to trust in God yet? After everything he's seen, after everything he's been through, he does the same thing again. And it might be tempting to characterize this as like an, inf- an unfortunate failure. You know, like you've been walking with God for many years, everything's been good, and for some reason you just fall back into that old thing. It's kind of inexplicable. Why did this happen? But it's actually a lot worse than that. I want to jump to verse 9. Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you should have brought this enormous guilt upon me in my kingdom? You've done things to me that never should be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, What made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. 
What we find out in those verses is not that Abraham did something um, foolish once and then walked in faithfulness for many years and tripped up again. What we find out is that Abraham does this wherever he goes, constantly. This is the pattern of his life. The two stories we read in Genesis are the only times that he gets caught. See, this is a part of Abraham's life that has not yet been changed by allegiance to Yahweh. Abraham and Sarah, they haven't put all of their trust in God. After all of these years, this section of who they are, this little political game where you call, call me your sister for our protection, it just hasn't been influenced by their faith in Yahweh. And I think it prompts the question, are, are there parts of our lives that are off limits to God? Is there something about your life, you're like 95% bought into Jesus, but there's this thing over here that we just don't talk about that God doesn't touch. This is just my thing. Maybe it's a social media habit. Maybe it's a gossipy relationship, just a little shady business dealing. Just that, that little thing over there, this is just how we do it. We've just done it this way for a long time, and God doesn't need to get involved with that. And how, how would we tell if this is the case in our life? And I think Abraham is helpful here. You come up with a really good reason for why you do it. You know, technically, she is my sister. I'm not totally lying right now, kind of. Right? Abraham wouldn't need to come up with that kind of rationale if he didn't know that he was doing something wrong. This is when we, when we rationalize things, when we create excuses for our behavior, it's because something in our conscience most likely is pricking us and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. Last week in our community group, we were talking about Napster. Anybody remember Napster? How many of you have stolen hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of songs on Napster? Yeah. We'll talk later. <laughs> You know what I used to say is, you know what, this album that I'm downloading, I don't have any money, so I wouldn't be buying this album in the store anyway, so I'm not really withholding my money from the artist because they wouldn't get it in the first place, so I might as well just listen to it for free. It's not really stealing that way, right? Pornography isn't technically adultery. That side business I have, it's really more of a hobby. No need to claim the income on my taxes. Recently, we had to get a, a, a new A-frame sign for the church, and they have, the, the city just instituted a whole, like, sign permit system. And I went down there and said, like, I, it's not a permanent sign because I have to put it out every week, but it's not a temporary sign because I want to put it out every week. And they said, well, we just don't really have a system for that. So you're going to have to buy a temporary sign and then renew it every 90 days. And I kind of wanted to go like, well, they don't really have a category for our sign, so I really don't need to get a permit, do I? <laughs> right. That makes sense. I got a permit. <laughs> but see, there's this clue in my soul that there is part of my life that has not fully come under the authority of Christ because I'm making up excuses. 
If there are areas in your life that you have closed off to God, that you manage your own way, today would be a good day to give up control of those things. Because see, this pattern of dishonesty that Abraham and Sarah have so deeply ingrained in their family, they pass it on to their son. In chapter 26, we see Isaac and his wife do the same thing. And we tend to pass on our own specific brokenness to our children if we don't deal with it. So what's the problem here? The problem is Abraham and Sarah are supposed to have a child, a miraculously born child. They're both way too old to have a child, but God is going to reopen Sarah's womb and give her the ability to get pregnant, and they're going to have this baby. They're going to name him Isaac. They know this. But now all of a sudden, Sarah is the wife of this foreign king. Uh Uh-oh, this is not good for the plan. Abraham and Sarah's faithlessness, their lack of trust is totally messing up the plan. But God's going to fix it. Look at verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, you are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clear, clean hands. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called his servants together, and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. So God shows up. He goes out of his way to appear to Abimelech in a dream. Turns out Abimelech is a man of character. He proclaims his innocence. God acknowledges that he's innocent, but then God uses the circumstances to create a situation where Abraham ends up getting honored by the people of Gerar. I think this story is super weird because I feel, I really feel for Abimelech, right? Abraham's being a jerk. Abimelech is innocent, but God still says, hey, you know what? You're going to need to go ask Abraham to pray for you so that you don't die. That doesn't seem fair. God says, Abraham is a prophet. This is the first time someone's been called a prophet in Scripture. He will speak for the Lord and he will pray for you. And then down in verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could bear children. The Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So the story doesn't really make clear how long this situation has been going. But it was long enough for everyone to notice that no one was getting pregnant. So whatever was happening, it might have been affecting the men as well, which might explain why Abimelech uh, had not tried to consummate the marriage with Sarah. John Walton says anything that prevented childbirth could be described as closing the womb. And in the diagnosis of medical conditions in the ancient Near East, they tended to be symptomatic, identifying consequences rather than ontological, identifying causes. 
So what he's saying is that something's going on that is preventing pregnancy, and it could have been a whole gamut of things affecting the women and the men. There's some kind of illness that God is responsible for that's preventing everyone from having children. So God keeps Abraham and Sarah from doing something that would have jeopardized this promised child, the birth of Isaac, which is on the horizon. He prevents Abimelech from committing adultery with Sarah, creating confusion about who the heir of Abraham actually is. And he also creates a situation where Abraham is given honor by the people of Gerar. And both of these things matter. We'll get back to the honor thing later. But everything in this story, everything that Abraham and Sarah do is um, self-protective. It's fearful. Somewhere inside, they know it's wrong because they're making up excuses about it. But God is faithful. God steps in and takes care of it. Verse 14, Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully indicated. Abimelech says, "I, I want to make sure everyone knows that I didn't do anything dishonorable. So here's a bunch of stuff. He gives Abraham about $240,000 in today's money, plus a bunch of animals and slaves. See, this is really important because the very next thing we read in chapter 21, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And when his son was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears me will laugh with me. He also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. And this is really critical in the story. If, if this whole thing with Abimelech had gone a different direction, there would be doubt as to whether or not the promised son was actually legitimate. And so God is protecting this circumstance all through there. We get to chapter 21, and it just kind of says like, and then Sarah got pregnant, right? The, the whole, the climax of this whole story, going back to chapter 12, where Abraham is gonna have a son, he's gonna be many nations, he's gonna bless the world through his descendants. It just kinda, just kinda happens. Sarah gets pregnant. Sarah has a son. Sarah's pretty excited about it. John Walton again says, what God does should never cease to amaze us but that he consistently shows himself capable of doing what he does without apparent effort is strikingly commonplace and entirely unremarkable. I think that's really interesting. There's some of us, uh, some of you have come and talked to me recently, and I've kind of been feeling this this sense that that our, um, 
Our situation with our, our gathering space on Sundays is, is kind of up in the air. Uh, what we, we've got a good relationship with our landlords, but they're, they've got plans for the building, and, and nobody's really quite sure how that's going to play out. And, and so I, I think a lot about, like, what would happen if we had to leave this space and get a different one? And when we got this space, it was something that we weren't looking for that God completely dropped in our laps. And I'm confident that if we have to leave this space and go somewhere else, that God will be faithful. And so on one level, like, I I just have this really settled, understated kind of like, yeah, God's going to provide. But I guarantee you that if that should happen and God should provide that for us, we will all be blown away by how he does it. There will be a day that will come and there will be circumstances that will line up. And even as much as we say, like, in with platitudes like God is faithful and God works and God blesses, when he actually does stuff, it's crazy. Because we don't, we don't actually really believe it all the time. Of course, he's going to take care of his people. Of course, he's going to meet our need. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's in line with his character. But we sure are surprised when it happens. So throughout this story, God makes sure to protect Abraham and Sarah from themselves and safeguard his promise that he would miraculously give them a biological son when there is no natural way to do that. But that doesn't mean everything is great for them. I mean, the promise of, of God's favor on you does not mean that you are free from the consequences of your foolishness. Abimelech rebukes Abraham and Sarah for their deception. He's pretty upset about it. There are relational consequences that they have to deal with because of their dishonesty. But God keeps his word. So let's take a look at the second promise, the the promised land. You're not only going to get a son, Abraham, but you're also going to get a land, a possession of your own. Chapter 21, verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son, Isaac. So Isaac is probably about three years old at this point on this this celebration of his weaning. And Sarah is thrilled to be a mother. They're having this big festival to celebrate Isaac. Ishmael is probably 17-ish years old. And he's mocking. The word could mean anything from, from playing with, teasing, laughing at. It's probably meant to be a negative. It's interesting that it's the same word in Hebrew as the name Isaac. Isaac means laughter. This word mocking, it's the same word. But we, it's, I think it's pretty fair to say that something is happening that is making Uh, Sarah unhappy. And so her solution is that Hagar and Ishmael should be banished from the household. And as as broken as this family is, it, it just doesn't seem like that's the most charitable way to handle the situation, does it? Abraham doesn't think so. Verse 11, this was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. You think? Another understated Bible verse, Abraham has raised Ishmael as his only son for 17 years, for a long period of that, thinking that he was the promised 
child, that, that they were doing what was right by bringing Hagar into their marriage relationship and, and creating this um, other arrangement so that Sarah could adopt Ishmael as her own son, which didn't work out. We talked about that a few chapters ago. Abraham's raising this boy to be his heir. And he's not happy about this idea that Ishmael should be sent away. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. So this is another point in the story that honestly makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, it, it doesn't seem like Abraham should be listening to Sarah here. Ishmael is, is mocking, like, he's a dumb teenage kid, right? Um, he's making fun of his little brother. Sarah gets angry about that. Like, I get that. But can't they, like, cool down and, like, work it out? Isn't that what families are supposed to do? But see, somewhere... Even through that, that anger that I would say is probably sinful anger, Sarah, in the midst of it, knows the promise of God that Abraham's heir is supposed to be Isaac, and that Ishmael is an obstacle to that promise. For Isaac to be the heir to inherit the land that is promised to Abraham, Ishmael can't be a part of the equation. It's just not going to work that way. And so God says, you know what? You need to listen to your wife and send the boy away. And at first it feels like that's just a really, oh man, it doesn't feel like God to me. It doesn't feel like something loving and kind and charitable. But then we, we continue reading in verse 14. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and took bread and a water skin and put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. And she left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water and the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bowshot away. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up and grasp his hand for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. And so she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew and he settled in the wilderness and became an archer. And he settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So this is the second time that Yahweh has come to Hagar in the wilderness. And this is, this is pretty unique. Hagar has a special relationship with God that not everyone in the Old Testament does. God appears to her twice and speaks with her. And he, he promises in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her desperation to bless her son. Ishmael will be a great nation. And she is provided water from a well. See, this whole situation was a problem to begin with. Hagar never should have been given to Abraham. Ishmael should never have been born. 
But that's what happened. That was the broken mess that Abraham and Sarah created. And God steps in and continues to love and care for them, even though they weren't a part of the plan. He blesses Ishmael because he is Abraham's son, even though he's not the son of the promise that God is going to work his plan of redemption through. And it's almost if I, I used to read this and, and, and see God as kind of, kind of harsh, sending, uh, agreeing with Sarah to send Hagar and Ishmael out in the wilderness and they're, they're thirsty and they're going to die. And then he shows up at the last minute and, and it just seemed really weird to me. But then I, I kind of started looking at it a little different. It's almost as if God is saying, you know what, Abraham, you, you, cannot, you cannot raise this family. You cannot care for these people. There's too much brokenness and pain here. I'm just going to do it for you. I'm going to take over here. I'm going to take this woman and her son, and I am going to move them out of your dysfunctional family, and I'm going to bless them. And that doesn't mean everything's, you know, happily ever after. We can still imagine all kinds of challenges for a single mother and a teenage son on their own. But God is with them. God cares about them. God loves them more than Abraham could have. And in this giant problem of Abraham's own making, God steps in and fixes. So, Briefly, I want to talk about the Ishmaelites. I think, I don't know if you're like this, but I think I grew up in a, in a, in a space in the church where the Ishmaelites were, were like the bad guys and the Israelites were the good guys. And if we read the rest of the Bible, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, they start out friendly to the people of Israel but there's times where there's hostility between them. There's specific Ishmaelites that marry into Israelite families. Um, Some of David's uh, mighty men are connected with the Ishmaelites tribally. Isaac and Ishmael in chapter 25, they seem to be on friendly terms with each other when their father dies, when they bury him. And so as we read the Bible there's really not a whole lot of evidence that the Ishmaelites should be seen as like the enemy. But what I think, as I think through my own upbringing, what I think makes me think this is that in the 6th century, 600 years after Jesus, the religion of Islam was founded. Um, The prophet Muhammad was said to have been a descendant of Ishmael. And the Quran tells a very similar story that we're reading here, except it makes Ishmael kind of the hero. And so it's easy for us to read the modern divisions between the Jewish people and the Muslim people or the Palestinian people into the text of Scripture. And I I feel like I've done that a lot. But the text doesn't really do that. In fact, the the text is very positive. God blesses Ishmael. He's going to have 12 sons. He's going to become a great nation. God keeps his promise to Abraham and also to his son Ishmael. The only thing that's going on here in the text is God is removing Ishmael from Abraham's immediate context because Isaac is the one that will inherit the blessing. 
So what's this blessing that Isaac is going to inherit? And this is where we get to the next part of chapter 21. At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Philcol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. As I have been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and the country where you are a resident alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech replied, I I didn't know who did this. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? He replied, you are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. After they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. So remember in chapter 20, God comes to Abimelech and says, hey, I know you didn't do anything wrong, but Abraham needs to pray for you or I'm going to kill you. And it sets up this weird relationship between Abimelech and Abraham where Abimelech recognizes that there is something about Abraham. He has been blessed by God. He has been chosen by God. He's a prophet. He is a powerful man. He's protected by Yahweh. And so Abimelech comes to him, notice with military backup, just in case anything goes sideways, in order to make a treaty. And this is what they do. But Abraham is the sticking point. There's this well that he dug in the land. And Abimelech's men have have taken it from him. And so Abraham says, hey, this is not right. You, I, I dug this well. And Abimelech goes like, I had no idea. Like that's kind of Abimelech's thing, right? Like every situation, like, I don't know. <laughs> so he says, let's fix it. And so Abraham pays for the well. It belongs to him. And he plants a tree. And this is the first time in the story that Abraham actually owns a part of the land that is promised to his family. This is the beginning of the inheritance of what is passed on to Isaac. In fact, this place, Beersheba, is where Isaac spends most of his life. In the midst of all of this brokenness and chaos, God is taking care of things, fixing things, preventing people from doing things that they will regret, all for the sake of his plan. These chapters illustrate that in the midst of all of our chaos, God is going to make sure his plans succeed. God wants to accomplish something in the the family of Abraham that will stretch all the way up to the birth of Jesus, the one who will rescue humanity from sin and death. And fearful, lying men and foreign rulers and angry, jealous mothers and mocking teenagers and real estate disputes are not going to stop him. All the way back in Genesis 3, God prophesies the seed of the woman. In Genesis 12, the Abraham, your descendant, the blessing to all the nations, he is going to come and sin is not going to stop him. 
And we're going to notice something as we begin to dig into the life of Isaac, that the parallels between Isaac, this miraculously born son, and Jesus Christ are pretty striking. It turns out that Jesus is actually the greater promised son, the one who is also miraculously born and who will also inherit all things. Hebrews 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all of the nations will be blessed through him. And we are invited to join Jesus as co-heirs of all things. In Romans 8, Paul says, for you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And this idea this, that, that God has got a plan, that he is going to see it through, that salvation is going to happen because he is in the business of saving sinners and that comes through Jesus Christ. Like this is the culmination of the story of Abraham, but it's also good news for us personally and it's good news for the church as a whole. A couple, couple verses that maybe you have in a coffee cup or a uh, you know, shabby chic sign. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. One more. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. See, this is good news to us as Christians because we continue, just like Abraham and Sarah, to be deeply broken people. If it was all up to Abraham to make sure God's plan got done, it would have been a disaster, wouldn't it? He would have failed at multiple points and the whole thing would have been a mess. If it was up to us to make sure the kingdom of God moved forward, it would also be a disaster. See, we need to to see ourselves in this story. We need to realize that we are Abraham and Sarah in this story. You are going to screw up. You are going to make mistakes. You are going to mishear the voice of God. You're going to sin and you maybe even deeply harm relationships. But God is committed to seeing his plan succeed. And that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences when we sin. Oftentimes, there are, and some of them are lifelong, and we have to live with them when we don't listen to God's voice. But God is still faithful. 2 Timothy 2 says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, the very character of Christ is such that he will fulfill his promises. He will make good on what he said he will do. 
And this, is, this isn't just good for us personally. This is good for the people of God as well. And in our context, it's depending on what news you read and what social media you follow, it's really easy to feel like the church is just falling apart around us. But the thing is, is the church can't fall apart. This church might fall apart. The American church might fall apart. But the church of Jesus Christ will not fall apart. Matthew 16 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. See, the church of Jesus Christ cannot fail in its mission to make disciples, because Jesus won't let it. If the mission was up to you and me, we would totally fail. We constantly fail. I fail all the time. But Jesus will see it through to the end because God is faithful to his promises, because he is committed to what he said all the way back to Abraham, that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And he will make sure that the work gets done. Let's do some questions. (laughs) If Sarah was so old and barren, why do these foreign kings want her as a wife? That's such a good question. That's the one, that's you read it and you go like, I don't really get it. What's going on here? I mean, the easier answer is it's just something the text doesn't tell us, right? Um, A lot of the commentaries wrestle with this question, especially a lot of the older ones, like a lot of the ancient church fathers wrestle with this. And and they have theories about like, um, like the the patriarchs lived longer, like we'll see that... that, um, I think Abraham is 175 or something when he dies. And so they live longer. So being 90 years old is like being 40 years old today or something. Um, Others would say that like God had blessed her with like this like rejuvenated youthfulness after her her womb was opened. There were all these like hormones happening. And um, so that's a possibility. Um, Another option, which maybe, <laughs> maybe is a better one, um, is that oftentimes in the ancient world, marriages were political, right? You would, you would marry a princess from a foreign tribe, not because you fell in love with her, but because you wanted to make a political alliance. And Abraham is this powerful nomadic uh, tribesman. And it might just be that in both situations where it goes wrong for their little lying scheme, the rulers were just interested in protecting themselves and forming an alliance, and an unmarried sister would do that. Honestly, we, we just don't know. 
Does God actively intervene in our lives and keep us from sinning like he did with Abimelech? If so, how does this coexist with our free will? I mean, I don't know what he does in your life, but he can, right? The fact that we see that he intervenes in Abimelech's life means that he can intervene in anybody's life. Um, I think if, if, we, if we opened up the mic for stories of what that would look like, I bet we would have a lot of people sharing about how they were saved from really terrible things, either through a dream or through a set of circumstances or advice from a friend or opening up the word of God. So I think God does actively intervene in our lives in multiple ways. And I don't think that's a problem for free will. I mean, Abimelech wasn't forced to act the way he did. He was warned, right? Don't do this or I'm going to kill you was the warning, right? And he could have been like, I don't care and continued on with it. It didn't impact his free will for God to step into his life and give him a warning. He still had it, and he still had a choice to make. What should a Christian do when the only way to do the right thing is to sin? During World War II, many Christians lied about hiding Jews. Is it which sin is worse? Okay, this is a complicated question, and and you're probably not going to like my answer. Um, I don't believe that there is ever a situation where the only option is to sin. I just, I just don't think that that's true. I think, um, especially, and this is, this, especially when we talk about, like, everybody goes, you know, it's, you realize that the, 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 you've lost the argument when you bring up Hitler, right? So <laughs> when you talk about things like World War II and, and, and the work of, of uh, people hiding Jewish people from, from the Holocaust and all of that, like we imagine that there's a situation in which the only way to bring good about this situation is to act in evil. And God doesn't do that. Like God is never doing that. He's always acting in out of his goodness, and he asks us to imitate him. And so I think oftentimes we have a real lack of imagination when it comes to these thought experiments that hopefully none of us will ever have to experience. Um, uh, Brother Andrew, who's a missionary in the Soviet Union, died a couple, I think it was about a month ago. And um, what he did was he, he smuggled Bibles across the Iron Curtain in, the, in a VW bug. And um, multiple times, he would come to checkpoints where he's, his car would be searched. And the car would be filled with Bibles. And he would pray. And he would say, uh, God, blind the eyes of these guards so that they don't see the Bibles. And they, and <laughs> and they would search his car. And... Like sometimes for like hours, they would detain him and they would never find anything. And there'd be Bibles like literally sitting on the seat. And not that that's like going to happen in every situation, but, but the, 
I think what often we, we lack is the imagination of God intervening in a way that doesn't require us to walk in unrighteousness, because I just don't think God ever calls us to do that. All right. Let's do one more. You guys know you can jump on here and like upvote these questions. There's a lot of them. <laughs> Maybe later. Is it, po- is it a possible reason why Abraham and Sarah were never able to have children before Isaac because of how closely related they were to one another? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I don't know anything about that. Genetics. I think there's this, this kind of running theme throughout the scriptures, and we see it a couple times in... Um, in uh, chapter 20 and 21, that, that God, that the, the people of, of God in, in the ancient Near East have this idea that, that God is responsible for children, right? That he is the one that brings fruitfulness. And they don't have a really deep scientific understanding of how that works the way we do. And, and our understanding is full of holes as well. Like we, it's still kind of a mystery in many ways. But they had an idea of the basics. And so I, I, I hesitate to think that like they just kind of, they didn't really know that um, there were reasons why uh, children were not going to happen if, if two people were too closely related. Because I don't I really think that's true. I think that that's a different issue. And we see in the text that God is, is opening and closing wombs, right? The, the people in Gerar, like all of the women apparently cannot have children because God is purposing that. And then God purposes to have Sarah have a child. And while there are a lot of reasons for um, an inability to have children that aren't because God is closing the womb. It might just be possible that in this circumstance, it was God doing what God was going to do. And I don't think it's um, wise always to map that onto um, kind of modern problems, because that's not what the text is doing. Uh, it's, it's just telling the story about what happened in Abraham and Sarah's life. They were an older couple. They never had children. For whatever reason, we pick up in their story when they're already past the ability to have children. And so they, that's where the story picks up, and, and we just don't really know. And so I think, I mean, pastorally, and I don't know if anybody is, is struggling with this right now, but I, I would say, like, pastorally, if you're in a situation where you want to have children and you can't have children, like, don't read too much into this idea that it's God that is preventing you from having children. Um, it might be. I, 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 don't have, I don't have the knowledge to be privy to that. Um, But it might also just be that we live in a world that is marred by sin, and there's multiple reasons why that isn't happening. And um, that's definitely something to bring before the Lord in prayer and to surround yourself in godly community and and work through. Uh, But it doesn't, I I would be hesitant to say that um, even as we see that God is responsible for doing this in this story, I wouldn't want to put that on us 
today. And I don't know if anybody's feeling that way, but um, if so, like, um, that's not the only reason why there's issues of infertility in the world. So, good questions. We're going to take communion. And, and in, a, in a room like this, like it's, it's pretty easy to guess that, that there are some of us that are just really weary and broken for whatever reason. Maybe you just, you barely made it here after a really terrible week and you don't have the courage to even talk about what went on with anyone in this room. And maybe, maybe you're resonating with Abraham and Sarah because you brought that situation on yourself and you're living with the consequences of it. Uh, maybe you're resonating with Hagar and Ishmael because other people have harmed you. But just like God shows up to Hagar in the wilderness and he hears Ishmael's cry, Jesus hears our cry. Jesus sees that you're thirsty. He sees that you're at the end of your rope. He sees that you're weeping in the desert. And he shows up here at this table offering life-giving food and drink, his own body and his blood, sacrificed on the cross for our sin to redeem us, to make us new people. And so as we sing, I would just invite you to come to the table, to take the bread and the cup, and just take a moment to receive the love that God has for you. Take a moment to um, just think about the fact that no matter how many times you make the wrong choice, no matter how many times you screw things up, that God has a plan that is bigger than that, that he will see through to the end that he is going to be faithful, not because any of us are worth it, but because that's who he is. And he's made promises to his people. He began a good work in you, Christian. He will be faithful to complete it. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.